everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to our ninth episode. We are thrilled to share that today's episode with John Moyer is sponsored by three musical organizations in the York area. First, we have the wonderful York Youth Symphony Orchestra. The YYSO creates a unique opportunity for elite youth musicians to learn challenging repertoire with peers, perform in a variety of venues, and expand their perspectives of what it means to be a musician. The YYSO is committed to being the finest youth orchestra organization in the region, both on the stage and off the stage and in the community. We are looking forward to the 22-23 season under the direction of maestro Brian Buderbaugh and invite all listeners to save the date for our first concert on November 12th at 3 p.m. Repertoire will include Rimsky-Korsakov's Capriccio Espanol and Holst's The Planets. Please visit yorkusymphony.org for updates regarding our fall concert. More information about the YYSO and to find ways on how to support our organization's vision for orchestral excellence in central Pennsylvania. Next, we have the York Music Teachers Association, which is also sponsoring their second episode of Life Between the Notes. The YMTA is a nonprofit local affiliate of the Pennsylvania Music Teachers Association and Music Teachers National Association, which currently serves over 25,000 independent music teachers nationwide. Our goal is to promote the continuing education of independent music teachers in York, as well as provide performance and educational opportunities for their students. And last but certainly not least is the York Symphony Orchestra. The York Symphony Orchestra is a proud sponsor of Life Between the Notes. The York Symphony with maestro Lawrence Golan opens their 90th season with Tchaikovsky's passionate Fifth Symphony on Saturday, October 1st at the Appel Center. Tickets start at just $10. Call the Appel Center at 717-846-1111 or order online at yorksymphony.org. On a personal note, we are incredibly grateful for the support we have received in the community and from our sponsors. Thank you to the YYSO, YMTA, and the YSO for their support of this episode. And while we are expressing our gratitude to these great organizations, Morgan and I want to extend our gratitude to you, our listeners. We appreciate all the feedback we have received and also appreciate the sharing of our episodes on social media. This episode with John was, while fun, a great reflection on music education and full of great advice for young musicians. Please enjoy John's performance along with his Nittany Trombone Quartet colleagues, both before and after our interview. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did. Here is John's life between the notes.
Hi, everyone, and welcome to Life Between the Notes, where we are going beyond the bio and bringing you interviews of your favorite South Central Pennsylvania musicians. I'm Kirsten Myers, a local oboist living in the Lancaster area, and with me today is Morgan Davis, a local flutist also in the Lancaster area. Hello, Morgan. Hi. How are your cats today? They're, they're good. Everybody's chilling out. They've had a much less eventful week than I have. <laughs> They're good. So lucky. They're so lucky. So this is our last interview in our summer series of 2022. And today we are thrilled that Dr. John Moyer is here to share his musical journey as a trombonist and the dichotomy of teaching music students ranging from beginner levels through master's students at the university level. We will have more on that later, of course. But first, hello, John, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us today. Uh, thanks, it's a thrill to be here. Um, I also have a cat who could make an appearance um, at some time. She usually doesn't make a lot of noise unless I'm on Zoom, so. Oh, yeah, of course. That's when they come out. Of like tails and meows and <laughs> yes, yes. We've got coffee and cats. That's usually the theme. Yes, that is our. Th I was trying to think of how long we've known each other, John. And we were together at the summer music program at your college, and that might have been twelve years ago. I'm not sure how long that was. Yeah, I think so. I, I know I started at your college around two thousand three, 2000, somewhere around there. And I think the summer program had just got kicked off. It may have been a little bit longer than 12 years, but uh, yeah. that was a great time. I really enjoyed that time with the faculty and all those yeah. kids. Yeah, it, it was great. And so, we, and we've seen each other once in a while um, in, in different venues and such, but um, what I, he's also high on my nice list for being a beginning band director who actually starts students on the oboe. So thank you for that. Um, that is, I find that to be crucial for um, like the oboe uh, in general and for teachers like myself. And well, um, I'm also smart enough to send them to you as quickly as I can. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> but here is a bit more information about John. Um, he is an adjunct faculty member at Messiah University in Grantham, Pennsylvania, where he teaches applied music and directs the school's trombone ensemble. In addition to duties with trombone, he is a member of the graduate school's music education faculty. Prior to his appointment at Messiah, he served as adjunct professor of low brass, including trombone, euphonium, and tuba at York College of Pennsylvania from 2001 to 2020 teaching applied music, brass ensemble, brass methods courses, along with winds and percussion in the college's summer music program. For nearly 30 years, John has been the instrumental music instructor and the intermediate level band director at Central York School District in Pennsylvania, where he works with beginning and developing band students in grades five and six. John is a founding member and tenor trombotist of the Nittany Trombone Quartet. This group, formed in 1987, has played countless concerts, clinics, and master classes at campuses across the United States. In celebration of their 25th anniversary, their group released an album of all original holiday music entitled Christmas with the Nittany Trombone Quartet. All 25 tracks are available on all digital and streaming outlets. 
In addition to the trombone quartet, he is a member of First Capital Brass, the President's Brass at Messiah University, and performs frequently with numerous ensembles throughout the central Pennsylvania area. John is an S.E. Shires Company trombone artist. Uh, Dr. Moyer hails from Butler, Pennsylvania. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Music Education from Penn State University, Master of Science in Music Education from Towson University, and the Doctor of Musical Arts from Boston University. John, his wife, Angeline, and their children, Lauren and James, reside in York, Pennsylvania. So, oh John, my gosh. I, yeah. Is there anything more awkward than listening to someone read your bio? <laughs> You did a beautiful job, but it is, it's still tough to sit through, isn't it? Morgan has said that in the past, that yeah. it's a hard Yeah, thing. and I think we've had so many people comment on that, but I've done other friends' podcasts, and then they read my bio, and it's like, oh, this is so cringy. <laughs> yes, there are some awkward things about <laughs> doing a podcast and, and even listening to yourself and having to edit it. Um, there, it's, it can be challenging, so... Um, so anyway, again, thank you for being here. So our focus in our podcast is South Central Pennsylvania musicians. However, you're originally from Butler, Pennsylvania, um, yet we are still accepting you on this podcast. Oh, thank you so, so much. <laughs> so now Butler is in Western Pennsylvania, correct? That's right. Yep. I grew up drinking pop and cutting the grass. Yeah. <laughs> and then had to learn to, to drink soda and mow the lawn when I moved on the other side of the river here. Yeah. Right. The mountains, rather. So what was it that brought you to this area? Was it the job at Central? Yeah, it really was. Um, when I was at Penn State, uh, actually, I was going to stay and do a master's degree, but I got married as a junior. Um, and my wife and I both decided that it was time to move on and kind of uh, become an adult and, and get a job. And there was a consortium from York County that had come and done a hiring event on campus. So I kind of went and did an interview. They put my letter and results of the interview in a file kind of for the county, and then it narrowed down from there. So um, I didn't have any real ties. We were willing to move. We didn't move too far. Um, but that's what brought me to York right out of undergrad. Okay. And this was at Penn State when you were? Right. Yeah. The consortium had come to, to Penn State. I didn't know too much about York. I hadn't been to this area a whole lot. Right. Right. Okay. Great. So, so as far as when you started, um, was trombone your first instrument? No, it wasn't. I started out uh, with piano probably as young as in kindergarten. Oh, wow. And yeah, I had, oh my gosh, I had the, the most stereotypical little old lady piano teacher. She had a house full of dogs and Siamese cats that would sit on the piano when you played. Uh, and she was the best. Um, and I worked with her for years and years, all the way through high school. And I did like the, you know, the junior federation of music club competitions and the piano guild and all those things um, before starting trombone in fifth grade. Okay. All right. So now I imagine, was it one of your parents who like pushed for the piano or, or were you actually asking for piano lessons in kindergarten? No, we had a piano in the house. We still okay. own it. Um, my mom and her siblings all played. Um, so it was there from birth. Uh, and it feels like even though she didn't have a lot of formal training, 
throughout her adult life. It was actually really cool that she would go to the piano lessons with me as you do, you know, when your kids <laughs> five or six and she would kind of glean what I was doing. And I'm pretty sure that when I was at school, she was a stay at home mom for a large portion of my childhood and she would play and practice and, and we kind of got two for one lessons in that she yeah. developed those piano skills as I went through uh, lessons as well. That's so sweet. It yeah. was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you had, so you did that since kindergarten and then so fifth grade is when you started trombone. Why, why did you choose the trombone? I know that my band director, her name was Mrs. Coyle. She knew that I had played piano and played fairly well, well enough that I was accompanying the chorus, you know, for concerts and for rehearsals and in class. So I think she had her eyes light up a little bit about somebody who already could read music, um, specifically bass clef. And she really sold me on the kind of unique opportunity to play the trombone. You know, you don't want to play the clarinet or the trumpet where there's already a million kids do. You want to play something that's a little more unique. And um, that must have resonated with me to some degree. Um, and sure enough, it stuck. Yeah, that's great. And so, um, so then you obviously, I mean, you, you had continued in through high school. Um, and so when, when you were in school, middle school, high school, were you involved in other activities um, other than music? Or well, honestly, I used to think that I was, but in reality, not much. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's so funny because I went to start the whole college application process and I had gone to a really small private school near us. And I had applied to become a speech and communications major. I really have no idea. Other than the fact that one time I was on the way to a, a gig, there was a band over in Western PA that was a, um, a musician's band that was all union members. And I went and I played with a couple of the music teachers that I had grown up with, including my current high school band teacher. And I remember one time saying, oh, I think I might want to go into music. And he's like, oh, you don't want to. And I think now as I reflect back, I think he was just being kind of sarcastic. He had a really dry sense of humor. Yeah. But at the time I was like, well, oh, I guess, okay, I guess that guy. <laughs> no. So I go to this interview, you know, with a uh, college admissions officer and I'm going through my application and all the, you know, the honors and the accolades and the clubs. And honest to goodness, I mean, maybe I was on a flag football team or something, but 99% of what I had done was in music. And he looked at me, he goes, what, what are you doing? Why are you not going into music? And I, I just looked at him and I thought, I don't know. I really should be, shouldn't I? And later that year I made Allstate Band and I met you know, um, my uh, soon to be trombone professor, Mark Lusk from Penn State. And the rest is history, but it is funny to think that I remember being a little bit more diverse in what I did in school. But when I really look back at, at my grades and all the pictures and things like that, you know, I was in Boy Scouts. I'm an Eagle Scout. <laughs> I, could, uh, I could go through that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, loyal, friendly, courteous, kind of being cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, reverent, all that. Um, That's impressive. Yeah. 
I struggled, struggled at the beginning, but finished strong. <laughs> um, you know, swimming lessons, a few things like that, but really, like so many people who are band, chorus, orchestra people, you know, that was where I spent all my time. That was my circle of friends. That was the part of the building that I spent all my time in. So it was a natural next step. And it's funny how sometimes it takes somebody else to like look at that and notice that and say, uh, hey, look, <laughs> you're involved in all of this. You like this and just kind of point that out to you. Yeah, I was really grateful to that guy. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, remain, and remain so. I don't know if it, it was that way then. I mean, I feel like now when my students talk to people and they say they want to go into music, everyone's trying to steer them the other direction. Um, so I think it's pretty impressive that somebody looked at that and then, and then saw some interest and aptitude and all of the right things and said, you know, hey, this is, this is a good path, not like a, an irresponsible one. Because the number of students I have that tell their guidance counselors or other teachers, you know, they want to major in music and then they say, no, that's a bad idea. Well, I don't think it's any worse than a business degree now because like there's no guarantees coming out of school with any kind of degree to some extent. No, and you know, to to bring this point a little closer to home, my own son just finished a year at college um, in science. Mm -hmm. And we realized after that year that that course of study just did not resonate with him. And over the course of the summer here, we really worked hard and kind of got back on track. And he's actually going into music ed um, when we go back to school in the fall. So a really interesting bit of parallel there. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, he had the year of experience to figure it out, whereas I was nudged a little bit sooner in the decision-making process. But I think the end result is what matters, right? This idea of following your heart and do something that you love. You know, we've all heard the quote, you know, do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I'm not sure if that's 100% accurate. But <laughs> They're not making you <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, you do work. Um, but it certainly is a good starting point. Yeah, I have a student recently who who um, went to school and, you know, kind of got steered away from music and then ended up changing her major and then adding a music major to it. And and I, I think, you know, depending on, so often we go on for it, like a continuing degree now for, a, you know, a master's or some kind of advanced degree. And I think doing something you're interested in and, and having a successful experience at that just sets you up for where, whatever you end up doing later. Um, you know, it, it matters less what the, what's on the piece of paper now, maybe. Absolutely. Yeah. And that probably made you to John think of like your experience too, like walking through this with your son. Now, you know, you think about how it happened for you and the decisions that you made and how you came. Absolutely. And it's something that didn't, it's not easy to do, you know, after you've invested a year to think about changing um, course so much, but it certainly made it easier knowing that you're going back to that same old familiar yeah. environment of yeah. being around like-minded people. We are already seeing a difference in the kind of care and compassion from the advisors, from his faculty members, from the audition process, all the way through some of the other logistics, it is totally different mm -hmm. than the vibe and the feel that he had as a member of 
a science department um, and you know the idea of a weed out class or being in those really big classes where you have you know 300 kids in an auditorium taking a high level math course or chemistry or something like that so right. you know it it is definitely a whole different culture uh, within a university setting we still have our family in that music wing um, and it I think is the most important part and the thing that he was missing the most. Right. Yeah. That's so great. And it's and really, you know, after a freshman year, it's it's great that he recognizes that. Oh, I'm so proud of him. Yeah, that's great. So so when you um, decided that you were going into music, were your parents supportive of of that? They were. Yeah. They were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um I think that had I said music performance, they might have been a little more skeptical, but I think that where they were thinking about job security and a pension and health insurance and things like that, you know, things that parents do think about. Yep. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm grateful that they did, but I do feel that that conversation may have been a little bit tougher, a little bit harder sell, um, but they were definitely supportive. And my mom, so Penn State, was about three hours away from where I was living at the time. And my mom had gone back to work when I was in middle school full time as an office manager. And she would get off work and work through her lunch and drive to Penn State and see almost every concert that I was in. And then go home and get home at whatever hour. Uh, my dad was a steel worker who would swing shift. He wasn't able to do it quite as often, um, but they both, um, really enjoyed being there, watching that whole process. And, you know, my mom's not with us anymore, but I still love looking out in the audience and seeing my dad there and, mm -hmm. you know, my kids and my parents, you know, and still sharing that, you know, and what a gift, what a gift that is to still be able to connect with your family, you know, to have them come and see you perform or just be part of your journey and, and share such an important part of your life with you. Yeah, you make like such an interesting, uh, I mean, I think for all of us, like it's important you see people that you care about in the audience. And like, I know when I went to music school and I was an only child, um, you know, I really took my parents along for the whole ride. <laughs> like they lived through all the ups and downs of that whole experience with me. Um, and in a similar way, you know, I was, I, well, I grew up close to Penn State and then I went to Ohio State. So, uh, oh, oh you know. dear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that changes the tone of the of the whole podcast now. <laughs> it's over. Yeah, that's the end. <laughs> My goodness. All right. Well, yeah. so, but, well I, at least we still have music in common. <laughs> Something in common. Um, but you know, they would drive to like five hours to come see a, an important concert and, you know, listen to me cry on the phone when I had a bad lesson. <laughs> you really, you take everybody with you when you do it. It's a big, it's a, it's a whole life decision to be a music major. For sure. Yeah. So, so when, while you were at Penn State, like, had you known then, um, like what direction you wanted to go in, whether it was like, teaching in, in the schools or now, of course, you're doing some university level teaching, like had that like ever crossed your mind? I don't think the college, a, the college teaching was a 
consideration or even a thought at all at that point. And even if it had, I don't think I would have understood exactly what it took to get to that point. But I find this to be pretty interesting. I sometimes talk to groups like the student groups and college campuses, you know, who are talking about careers in music ed. And a lot of times I will admit that my job that I currently have and uh, will be starting my 30th year in the fall was not my dream job at all, was not what I pictured doing. I honestly think that most kids, when they decide to go into music education, it's because of the experience that they had most recently in middle school, in high school, where you're really making art at a high level. You're getting all those, you know, crackling, sizzling synapses happen with the aesthetic response. And what I had talked about earlier is happening where you feel this sense of family. You feel so incredibly close. I'm sure everyone listening who's a musician can picture sitting in high school band, orchestra, chorus, can picture being in their private lessons because of the connection, Morgan, that you just talked about, the connection that music makes with us is so strong that I think that most kids go into music kind of picture themselves going back to their hometown and kind of being in that position, right? Yeah. Being the high school band orchestra chorus teacher or, or, or just being in a similar situation. But the reality is those jobs are a little harder to come by, um, you know, because in larger districts, someone who is currently in elementary or middle school may bid into or want to move up. Um, yeah. And also when you have some of the high powered music programs like the ones we have in this area, you may not necessarily be looking for a first year student to come and be the face of a, of a big band or choir or orchestra program. So I think a lot of times you have to change your goals a little bit along the way and, and take the job that is offered. And then once you're a little bit more established, you have some things on your resume, then if your heart so desires, you can look at shifting. But right. I can't imagine being able to try and do all the things that I do playing and also teaching at the college level, if I was a, a middle school or a high school teacher, right. um, you probably don't encounter, you know, both of you guys, as you are out playing gigs, you might not sit beside too many high school teachers um, simply because of the incredible Demand. extracurricular schedule that they have to manage. Right. In my case, in the band world, you know, you go from marching band that's already started with music practices and band camps and all those things and you get through that and then you might get in a holiday season where you may have you know some extra groups and concerts and then boom you're into jazz band and the musical um and all those things so at least precious little time to be able to do it so right. um, when i do talk to young kids in music education um i do encourage them to at least consider a job like mine um, because you do have a little bit more freedom with the evening commitments, mm -hmm. but it's also a super important job. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. I think you said something really insightful though. That's not related to how important, but you're right. It's really important to have somebody working with those young players. But I think about our expectations of what life will be like on the other side of college, if we're music education majors, but also music performance majors, 
you know, even though you understand how difficult what you do is, I think students leave school and it's like, it's a little easy to become slightly jaded um, or, you know, to feel a little disappointed in the realities of what's available in those first few years. <laughs> oh, for sure. When yeah. I came to York, um, you know, I had felt pretty confident about my playing. As I said, I was going to do a master's degree. I'd been accepted and had an assistantship that I was going to do a master's degree in performance. So I came to York and I was like, yeah, here I am, York. You know, you're so lucky to have, you know, a new trombone player here. <laughs> but what I figured out was that there was already, you know, dozens and dozens and they were already in the seats and well-established and great players, you know, some of them who I became friends with later, but you don't just necessarily blow into a new town and have everybody offer you a spot in their ensemble. So you know, regardless of your music ed, music performance, you know, those, those opportunities aren't always as available as you would hope or think they right. would. And, and it's yeah. not just about how well you play. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, it depends on the area and just reestablishing yourself somewhere else, I think musically is very difficult. Um, you know, I mean, Morgan has talked about this because I mean, she did that when she moved to Lancaster as well. Like, it's, I mean, you, <laughs> you really yeah. have to get out there and pound the pavement. Um, and, and it's very much like your um, interpersonal skills are as important or more important. Um, I mean, you have to be prepared, you have to play well, but you have to be able to talk to people and, and be interested in people and, and um, understand the situations that you're entering where people, especially in this area, have become so established and are really excellent musicians and you're sort of walking into that whole um, environment. Yeah, it's a unique dynamic for sure. And I think it really boils down to relationships, right? So, you know, yes, you have to be able to play the book, but the relationships that you foster with, whether it's people within your section, whether it's people, personnel managers or other people that you encounter, you know, that relationship has to be strong and solid uh, as well. And sometimes it, it just takes time. Mm -hmm. um, and also it takes some luck, right? Um, <laughs> my My former marching band director, Dr. Bundy from Penn State said that success comes where um, opportunity and preparation cross. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember I was practicing in my room at my elementary school. I'd only been at this teaching for a couple years, but as I said, I was struggling. I was not gigging a lot. And I was practicing a little bit after school and the school nurse walked past and goes, oh, you play the trombone. I didn't know that. And I said, yeah, that's my main instrument. Um, and I was just kind of trying to sharpen the ax a little bit. And she goes, well, my, my church needs someone to play for Easter. And I said, well, that would be great. I would love to do that. And, you know, I'll cut a long story short here and say that when I got there, the other trombone player was playing in the symphony and was actually one of the officers in the symphony and had provided an opportunity for me to sub. One of the other musicians there was actually teaching and working at York College um, and was conducting the local concert band, or the, the union band here in York. And after meeting them and having a chance to play together, all of a sudden, some of those opportunities that I had talked about being a bit fleeting um, opened up a little bit. And that was really due to chance. Now, 
Yeah. You know, I don't want to sell myself 100% short and say, well, you know, when I had the opportunity, I obviously, you know, played well enough and was able to establish a relationship, have fun and, you know, be successful in that moment. But it instantly led to other steps. And actually, if I really look back, that's a big moment in kind of establishing myself here in York. Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many parallels in that to when I got here and it was like a church gig that turned into another gig that was with a personnel manager, you know, and it was like a very similar experience of just being able to show up and do a good job, but also get to know people. And um, I think it's really cool to hear how that comes together for people. Yeah. So, so you're saying we should practice in public places so that people will hear us. <laughs> And then recommend us church. So. <laughs> you never know. I mean, she was yeah. so she was in the you know, she was in the church's choir and the director must have said, Hey, if you guys know any trombone players, let me right. know. Yeah, and, like so, who knew who knew? I mean, yeah. it, it is one of those things, it's a bit humbling, isn't it? If you really stop and think about mm -hmm. all the steps that had to happen in order right. for that yeah. moment mm -hmm. to put me in that place. So exactly. you know, yeah. it makes you feel a bit small in the world, but mm -hmm. um, and the willingness to keep putting yourself out there to keep making that stuff happen takes a lot. Yeah, it can be frustrating, I'm sure. Um, again, at that time, I'd also had started a family and was doing some other things. So it's it's a little bit ironic that I had I had stopped trying quite as hard, yeah, and right. and I just kind of let it come to me a bit. Yeah. So so as far as the timeline, then. Um, so when you worked on your master's um, mm -hmm. and and then your DMA, like when, where was that like in the timeline? Let's see, I think um, I started teaching in 93 and I completed my master's degree at Towson in 99. So I did that pretty quickly. And for those people listening and for you guys, you know, obviously in public school in public education the only way to make more money <laughs> is longevity and and education so there's kind of a sliding matrix that goes on there so um it makes sense to try and get the master's degree and then as many credits as you can beyond that in order for you know the job as a humble uh, public servant to pay a little bit more you, know, you can make more money doing the exact same job if you move what we call down and across the salary scale. So right. being, uh, you know, a thoughtful, responsible husband and father, I thought, well, I better get, I better get busy. Um, so the master's degree took a while because it was driving, commuting down to Towson. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, you, you know, the, the distance was not uh, that far, but it certainly took a lot of time. And we were before the days of, the online programs. So that was 99. It took me quite a while to get back to start, um, I guess another six years, I started the, the doctoral program with a lot of that being online uh, okay. through BU. One of the first programs to do that um, right. with a lot of residencies and time up in Boston as well mixed in. And I got that degree in 2010, which wow. I gotta be honest with you, doesn't feel as long ago as it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and that's all, I mean, I've, and with your master's, I mean, you had your kids at that point too, correct? Yeah, yeah, and I will give a big shout out to my beautiful and supportive wife, Angeline. Yeah. Um, that decision to, to start the master's degree 
and even more so the doctoral review, just because of the intense amount of time and coursework. Um, you know, that really took her being willing to take on literally everything else so that I could do that. Um, and gosh, she was such a rock star. And, and it took, you know, that was five, five years, a really long time to be able to, to get through that program. And, um, you know, I guess to circle back, if we're, a theme is emerging here is it takes a village, right? So I was just, I was know, just going we, to say that. Yeah, it's really, it's really great in saying that, you know, we talked about the support from my parents and then the support of the people around you when you're making music, you know, that the feel that you get in the band room or the music wing. And then, you know, I'm sure you all have that same experience is that, you know, your family always has to be there to support you. They have to understand the crazy late night that you're doing a show and, you know, crash week and that you're not getting home till midnight and you're leaving as soon as, you know, school is out. So yeah. none of us do this alone. And it's just amazing. It's been amazing for me uh, to have her support through this whole thing. That's another thing I think they could teach us in school a little bit. Uh, so it's not, I mean, maybe people wouldn't want to, <laughs> wouldn't want to pursue it quite the same way. But if you understand, I think it's easier, you know, it's a lot to, to understand once you get out of school or like um, balance you know, that, like you said, those late nights, all of those things. I mean, my husband's not a musician and, um, you know, that was a big learning curve for us in our relationship was what my schedule looks like compared to his regular eight to five schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to explain why you're driving an hour and a half yeah. for, a, for, a, for an hour long concert, an hour and a half back, you know, and then for whatever the, the you know the union scale is, it or you know for yeah. fifty bucks or whatever way that is, with gas prices the way they are and things, um, yeah, that can be a that can be a tough sell sometimes, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, but I love what I do. Yeah. 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 But yeah, logistically, I mean, it can, and 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 then with kids uh, too, it's you know you have the tag team parenting kind of thing going on uh, a lot of times as well, and so. Um, so in your, uh, let's see, in your career as a student, did you have, um, a teacher uh, that stood out to you that was particularly like influential, um, who helped you out a lot? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to name a couple. I'm going to cheat and name a couple. Is that, <laughs> no, that's fine. I, because I mean, we've all yeah. had, yeah, quite a few yeah and i mean obviously you know you'd like to almost mention every single one because in in becoming the musician and teacher i am everyone has played a role so you know all those influences kind of soak in and then what comes out is some sort of an amazing combination of all the teaching that you've had prior um however um harding corky whitaker was my first real trombone teacher um who helped me really dig into the technique of the instrument. I had been relying mostly on my piano experience and background and just whatever natural ability um, to play. Um, and he got me into a steady diet of some of the standard literature and things that really helped prepare me 
um, to be successful at that age, you know, to go to district, regional, and state band, and then have some of those opportunities again come around later. And then at Penn State, my um, my studio teacher was was Mark Lust, and Mark kind of fed and really focused on the complete other end of the spectrum. And for him, it was all about just making beautiful music lines. And, you know, he's a guy that as you're playing one of these vocalises, he's screaming in your ear, just singing along at the top of his lungs, you know, right. encouraging you to make sure that you are in fact singing through the horn. Um, and in focusing on music, you know, the technique will come. So those two guys together really gave me what I needed to be successful. That's great. Often it is our studio teachers who, because we spend so much time with mm. them um, in our lessons and when, in master classes and that sort of thing. And so. Yeah, and you know they become like your default advisor. You know, mm -hmm. how many how many times um, did you have a lesson? It became a counseling session, right? <laughs> you play for three minutes, and they can tell right off the bat that something's wrong. You put the horn down, and an hour later, you're walking out of there, and you realize you haven't you haven't played a note since. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, certainly that's what makes that relationship special. And uh, you know, I mentioned in our in our pre pre recording session, you know, that I had just done a tour recently and gone back with the Nittany Trombone Quartet um, and played on campus. We've done that several times, um, but every time we do that, you know, you're instantly transformed back to that time when you're at such an Im impression uh, time, you know, when you're just so young and, you know, 18, 19, and to have that kind of influence and to have those kind of musical experiences there, uh, you're instantly transformed back as soon as you step foot on campus. Uh, and it's like, I mean, really amazing to think about those people who dedicate their lives to that interaction, that one-on-one, -on -one, you know, the number of times I cried in a lesson <laughs> in college. But you think about, I mean, too, just the the ensemble directors, the way those people make an impact really becomes such like an important, like woven, woven part of your experience as a musician. I think you articulated that so well. It's, and it's really kind of overwhelming to think about. It is, yeah. And, you know, I had mentioned teachers, but as you say, when you talk about all the different ensemble directors and the little pearls of wisdom that they, they drop up there or the, the way that they explain something or the, you know, the way that they help turn a phrase, it really is incredible how much of it goes into your brain somewhere and then you find yourself pulling it out like a filing cabinet right you, you go back <laughs> and you pull this thing and you go, where did that come from yeah. um and it, it's just amazing and you think about then how important it is you know the influence that we all have on our students whether it's a fourth grade kid that's in their second or third lesson or or someone who is you know going to graduate the next semester from mm -hmm. from college mm -hmm. Every one of those opportunities is an opportunity to, to make an impression in some way, whether it's, you know, something silly and connecting with a personality or, you know, something that sticks with them as a tool that they're going to use in their own playing or teaching later. So, yeah. again, a humbling moment to think about. And what is that like for you to go from teaching a beginning band student um, who they've never touched an instrument before to then going and 
going to Messiah and, you know, teaching. Um, wow. and, and in the same day too, right? So <laughs> like I end, I you grab something, I drive and I'm in this entirely different world. So I like to joke and say that it's not as different as you think. Um, and Explains. well, literally there are times where I do talk to college students about the same kind of things that I talk to beginning band students about like, hey, could you stand up straight, please? Oh. Um, or, you know, what are you doing with your hands? Or, you know, that articulation says it should be tongued and you're slurring it, you realize that, right? Um, so that's the kind of funny part is that you realize that you're teaching or reteaching or reinforcing a lot of those basics, even with really advanced players, right? We all need to be reminded. And mm -hmm. I, I want to let everyone know that if you've had any of my students, I do tell them to do these things. They just don't always remember, right? right. Um, <laughs> I think we all say that. Yeah. yeah. Or when they go to a class and they hear someone else say the same thing and they go, oh my gosh, did you know you're supposed to do this? Oh, it drives you crazy. Saying <laughs> it for years. <laughs> I mean, so being a teacher at both of those levels is really being a, a sounding board, being a mirror, saying, hey, do you realize that you're doing this? Well, don't do that anymore. That's not right. Um, or start doing this instead. Right. But for me, I think it all has to do with goal setting. You know, we, we have little short-term goals, long-term goals. For a beginning band student, one of their short-term goals might be do not open the case upside down and dump the contents of your instrument all over the floor. And it may take a couple of weeks to learn that. Um, and of course, you know, you have the very building blocks, lines and spaces and rhythms and all those amazing things, as well as some of the things that are a little more murky, like telling someone to play with a dark sound or uh, to play something uh, lightly um, and helping to work out, you know, that imagery where, you know, the same day later on, I might have someone who's short-term goal is to win a concerto competition. I guess that'd be more of a long-term goal, but, you know, looking at those steps to go through there. So I think knowing where you are and knowing where you're trying to go is something that leads, you know, both of those two things together as far as the way you structure a lesson. Mm -hmm. You're looking at a long journey either way. <laughs> right. That's, yeah. So... And I'm, I'm curious, like, so as a beginning band director, like, how, how do you find a good fit instrument-wise for a student? Like, what, well, what does that look like? I have changed my way of thinking about this um, as I've gotten older and hopefully wiser. We have done away with the instrument rental petting zoo night um, and moved towards letting a student simply play the instrument that they really want to learn to play. Mm -hmm. um, I have found my experience in my setting that there are very few kids who are physically unable to play the instrument that they want to play. Um, that's not to say that there aren't some physical traits or characteristics that they have that might lend themselves better to another instrument or lend themselves perfectly well to the one they've chosen, right? You know, you can picture the really tiny 
trombone player with short arms or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. But generally, I really think it's important that if a kid comes to you and has their heart set on playing the tuba, that unless there is some really compelling reason, then let's, let's let the kid play the tuba. Yeah. Right? Um, right. There is something there. There is some, something that attracted him to the sound. To the, even if it's just because it's big and shiny, then okay. Yeah. And over the course of their lessons, if it becomes apparent that they just absolutely cannot physically do it, um, you know, they cannot find their magic spot to make a sound on the head joint. They cannot, you know, yeah. get the, the embouchure right for a single read or other things. Then I will suggest, hey, mm -hmm. you know, there are other options out there, but I really um, feel strongly that letting, letting them kind of pick what they love is a right. great starting point, right? When you're right. asking them to go home and practice and do yeah. all these things. Well, that's the thing. You know, yeah, playing something you love is a heck of a good start, right? Yeah, giving kids some autonomy too, because like, what kid doesn't like to be able to really participate in the decision that's being made? Oh yeah. Um, you know, I think that that's pretty cool. And I meant just like this is such a I'm like grinning over here because I'm remembering being a kid and wanting to play the flute, and my elementary school band director saying, "Well, you're probably not going to be very good at it, but you can try it," because I had a, like a teardrop shape in my lip. And at that time, that was a huge no for the flute. And he was like, well, I would suggest not, you know, but then as a stubborn kid, it's like, cool. Like, I'll play the flute, thanks. <laughs> you. Yeah. yeah. It's just, I think um, it's it's a great, that's great. Yeah, and honestly, like that is something that I'm like totally passionate about because I, you know, if, if it's something that, you know, they want to do and they love the sound of it, like, why would you discourage? somebody from doing because you know like long term like they're going more than likely they're going to stick with it if it's something that they chose themselves well you're starting with that as a as an advantage to begin with right mm -hmm. if you steer them towards an instrument that they're always like mm, i really didn't want to play that mm -hmm. trying to encourage them to do all the things you know it's a lot of work a lot of hard work mm -hmm. so yeah. I, I feel like that's an advantage and you know there are there are people who will subscribe to a philosophy that you want to have balanced instrumentation and or having a quota. Um, and I understand there's a certain reality of that. Right. I believe I may have told you that I have four or five oboes in one yeah. band in my beginning band. Um, perfect balance. Yeah, yeah. That is no one's idea of perfect balance. <laughs> but, you know, in fairness uh, to those kids, you know, it's a beginning band anyway. We don't have the perfect sound right. pyramid um, in place. Um, right. So we don't know what's going to happen later, you know, who's going to mm -hmm. stick with. And yeah. I just don't know that having perfect balanced instrumentation in sixth grade means that it's going to have yeah. any of that kind of result in ninth or tenth, right. you know, in, in, that, in that way. Right. Well, I feel like you're hinting at something else that's really important for teaching beginning band students, which is patience, <laughs> you know, and letting them pick something they like and then take the time to get to know it um, and not being so hasty to say, no, play this other instrument, do this thing. Because I know that I've had plenty of beginning students and I love working with beginners come to me and like, you know, I'm sitting in this lesson going, I am not sure that this is ever going to come together because <laughs> where I, I just you're not seeing 
like the recognition or whatever it is, the shape developing in the embouchure. And then within a year or two, those kids are just like thriving, you know, because they right. had the time and the space to figure it out. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, I spent a lot of time early in my career and I still do. I practice all those instruments. Like I'm, I'm pretty okay uh, at them because I feel like it's so important that they hear someone mm-hmm. model a sound that is something that they can aspire to make. Right. Um, How else would they know? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we don't always think about this, but there are tons of kids who the only instruction they get is that first year of lessons Mm -hmm. and everything else they do, they have to get from the large group experience. This is something that's pretty unique to band and orchestra and chorus. Um, You can get a kid who really doesn't go to what you would call a lesson. They may go to a sectional or a help session, but everything they learn about playing, they learn in band or in orchestra or in choir. Um, And that's a huge responsibility for those teachers to have enough understanding of the principles and pedagogy of all those brass woodwind percussion instruments in my case, um, you know, to be able to make sure that you're giving them a good start of a solid foundation. So um, I know I talked about earlier the fact that, you know, I have my evenings, um, but that I didn't mean to imply that it was an easier job as a result. <laughs> no. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. And and so speaking of that, so with the COVID shutdown, mm-hmm. like how did that affect what you do? Because of course, you know, music and especially beginning band or orchestra, I mean, it's so hands-on. And you like, did you did you start kids that year? We did not. No, we had a we had a bit of a um, a strong response in our buildings to the way that music was delivered. Um, and in hindsight, you know, maybe I had wished it hadn't been, but it was uncharted territory. So I don't sure. I don't want to sound like I'm bitter about it or anything. But we had no instrument playing at all, no, no wind instruments at all, for that entire school year. Um, so I didn't feel comfortable starting kids remotely um, just because of what I had kind of implied before. Like if they can't open the case right, and you know, you can imagine trying to put a clarinet or a saxophone read ligature assembly together yeah. or just checking their hand position and just trying to make sure that they're getting a good tone, a good quality thing. So we made the decision not to do that. But for the kids who were already in the pipeline in fifth and sixth grade at that time, they would come to a lesson where they sat socially distanced apart, empty handed except for an iPad. And I would teach them a concept on their you know, method book and they would go home and they would practice and play it and they would record themselves. Okay. And they would bring their iPad to a subsequent lesson and we would go through that recording together talk about what went well, talk about what needed reviewed. Um, And, you know, then from that point, very similar to what an an in-person lesson would be, you know, you either move on, you review, you go back, you Mm -hmm. practice, those sorts of things. So there were a few advantages in that, in that obviously the kids recording themselves and listen, I think that's something we encourage really um, advanced players to do. We don't always talk about that with younger players, but, the kind of feedback that they were able to provide for themselves, the way that they were able to inform their own 
playing and have a little bit more ownership of that was good. But everything else was rough, you know, um, no ensemble playing. So we did see a, a higher than normal attrition dropout rate because, you know, ultimately when you decide you want to be in band, in, in my case, you don't picture playing your instrument by yourself in your bedroom, right. uh, you know, for what would have been two years for those kids because they really didn't get a meaningful first yeah. performance. Um, because, you know, of course, March the previous year was spring concert season. So these kids had never played. So yeah. it took the kids who started at that time in fourth grade, they didn't play a concert until December of sixth grade. Wow. Yeah. So we are still recovering from that a little yeah. bit as far as our numbers um, and just trying to build back. But um, at Central York, we have a really good culture with music and people really do it resonates with a lot of families where they take a lot of pride in the strength of the arts here um so i think we're going to be okay and the numbers bounce back pretty nicely um but it was definitely a tough thing to navigate right right yeah and right and and music overall obviously um has suffered um, even the professional organizations and such. And still, um, I mean, we're we're in the summer of 2022, uh, you know, shutdown was in March of 2020. Um, you know, numbers are still not uh, where they were, you know, pre-COVID and so, but yeah, Absolutely. like throughout the entire system, so. Yeah. Everyone talks about, you know, it's too once people realize they can sit at home and watch performances you know i don't have to leave my house i can stream this regional orchestra or i could stream the vienna philharmonic you know if you're a classical music lover it changed the scope of how you can participate although i think a lot of people that love going to concerts probably would like to be there in person but yes i think now that when i when i am back and when i mentioned being back to live music we always get a round of applause it's a bit, hey, it's a cheap way to get some extra applause. <laughs> hey, let's have a big hand for being in person. You know, live music is bad. Um, right. And certainly amongst, that's a that's a, a, a neat demographic of people anyway. Yeah. Um, in the, the groups and the places that I play with my brass quintet, which is primarily the group I perform most with right now, it's usually a pretty well-educated crowd. And they're the kind of people that would go and see performances all over, including uh, symphonies and concert bands. <laughs> Like so it you're right the numbers are they're coming back but slow right right and and you had said too for you personally um throughout the past few years um it changed the way you accepted gigs and and like yeah. and what gigs you would um, yeah i suppose if there was a silver lining to covid i don't think this is unique to me but it did help put a little bit of a fine point on the things you really appreciate in life, right? Um, so I, we had moved into a, a newer home for us about that time. And I found myself immersed in all these home improvement projects, you know, kind of uh, renovations and all these kind of things. And, and my kids were here um, so much more. And I realized that there was some of the work that I had been going as a performer, I didn't miss when they weren't available. And I kind of had a real moment 
where I stopped and said, you know, at the age that I'm at now, maybe I don't need to say yes to every playing opportunity that comes in my inbox. And maybe I also don't have to take on every private student that kind of, you know, comes my way too. Um, and, you know, we talked a lot about the struggle of trying to become established. And I think one of the things then we're conditioned to is, you know, if you turn down this job, mm -hmm. they're not going to call you again, right? Um, they're going to find someone else and they're going to establish a new relationship there. So you do have to be at peace with that a little bit. Um, and I'm not sure if, you know, if it is a matter of my age or just having that experience and enjoying the extra time with my family. But, you know, the, the example that I mentioned before, you know, driving forever to play a game and drive back and then, you know, for 50 bucks or whatever it is, I'm willing to do that if I know it's a great musical experience or if I'm performing with people or a conductor or something that I love. There has to be value in it other than being busy. Um, you know, being busy is cool. And, you know, I think on social media, those of us who, you know, are out there on social media, you see the people who post my office for the night and there's so many folks who are doing really cool things and, you know, they're playing here and there and everywhere. And it looks like, my gosh, every, every time they turn around and it's hard to not have a little time <laughs> in the back of your head that says, you know, yeah. listen out on some of that. Um, but I do feel like there is some sort of a sliding matrix for me that has to do with um, the quality of the musical experience. And let's be honest, you know, the pay too. Um, and then just the amount of time that it would take me, you know, away from the other responsibilities and my family. So um, I definitely did not return to some of the things that I was doing pre-COVID. Um, and I think without exception, I don't, I don't regret that decision. I feel really good about it. Um, I feel just really good about making a conscious decision to use my time in a way that you know, makes me happy. Right, yeah. Kristen and I have talked about this before. I think it's like, or, or maybe it's come up in other interviews even, but it's been, I think it's, it's, you know, what are we working so hard for taking all of those gigs, taking all of those students, if it's not to reach a point where you can exercise some choice, you know, and then I think coming out of COVID, that feeling of, if not now, when, gave a lot of us who have worked really hard to get established a nudge to say, you know, maybe now is, now is when, now is when you can let go of those things that take away from your time to prepare for other gigs, your time to be with your family. Um, but it's hard because you spend, you, you're taught that from such an early age to just do it all because you should be so glad to work and we are, you know, so it's, an, it's really interesting. Yeah, it provided a clean break, right? A chance to mm -hmm. reassess. Mm -hmm. Because I think you don't have the time to stop and reflect on it. You just do it because you've always done it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's not a good reason to do anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you thought, yeah, how many of us would have said no to anything before that? Yeah, yeah right. Just, as a leadership or, you know, <laughs> that philosophy is to say that, well, I've always done that. It just isn't necessarily, <laughs> doesn't mean it's the best way to do it. So just like re-examining things has been, uh, it's been really great. Mm -hmm. It's like that quote about insanity, you know, it's like you keep doing the same thing and then you expect a different result. 
So um, now what, what would you say has been the most challenging aspect of your career as a whole? Wow. I'm going to answer with the easy right. questions. Yeah, you know what? I think actually, I do think balance. Yeah. I think finding balance. I think that there have been times where I have allowed that rat race, that mentality right. to tip the scales, to allow things to get out of balance. And that created, um, gosh, all kinds of problems, you know. I don't think I was as present that I needed to be, you know, here at home. Yeah. And I probably wasn't doing, you know, a great service to, to the jobs and to the playing as well. So it is hard to to keep playing at a really high level um, and balance all the other things that we have, whether it's... Yeah, and to have a full-time job and a... Yeah, program. right, right. So I feel like I don't know that I can point to a singular moment, but I can recall moments yeah. in which the scales yeah. tipped. Right. And it felt, it just felt like, um, gosh, things were a little out of control. So um, trying to be a little bit more focused on evening things out and making mm -hmm. sure that you're doing good work, um, but maybe a little less of it, um, right. was probably part of that decision-making process as we said, coming out of COVID as well. Yeah. And, and what part of your career have you enjoyed the most? Well, I mean, you've got a lot going yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> well, 30 years is a long time. Um, if I allow myself to feel proud about anything, I do stop and think about the fact that, you know, there's thousands of kids who I've started on something that is, you know, gosh, it's magical, right? So we are all talking, you know, you're talking with your podcast here, you're talking about people about their journeys. And to be the guy who is the first step in that journey for so many. Um, and now I have all these in our music department, I have two or three, uh, actually four, three, I think it's three. There's three people in our music department that were my students, uh, ah. you know, my colleagues. Um, How and, cool you know, is that? Yeah, oh, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, and if I go to a PMEA conference or something like that, I, I see tons of kids that I had, you know, either privately or, you know, and I, to, to see them being successful is, is, wildly exciting. And even the idea of, you know, taking the kid who really didn't know how to open their case and having them, you know, finish book one of essential elements, there is a lot of, gosh, there's a lot of satisfaction that comes from that. It's not, it's not a musically satisfying experience necessarily, right? You know, I'm not getting a lot of chills as I'm conducting my fifth grade group. But if you stop and think about where they've come to where they are, it's it's nothing short of amazing and um you know the relationships that you build along the way even with these kids who are you know 10 and 11 is is really cool too and their families you kind of you kind of are with them uh you know then i'm going to their middle school i'm going to their high school concerts i'm seeing their successes you know on social media and um i'm equally proud of the kids who didn't go on and continue to play but still 
got the most out of that experience all the way through high school. You know, obviously we have to understand that a huge portion of the kids that I start are going to quit at some point. You know, the number the, the number of my former students who are still making music is is insanely small, right? So, <laughs> so you have to you know embrace and be proud of the journey um, and what it's done for their lives. You know, who who it's helped them become. So, I honestly think that when I when I do that, if I if I go and I watch a high school band concert and I think about all those kids and imagine what they looked like and sounded like when they were nine or 10, it's just an amazing experience. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's my loaded question for the day. <laughs> um, so what do you feel, especially like post COVID or post-COVID shutdown, um, what do you feel is the greatest challenge for music educators today well i mean is it is it different than maybe what it was a few years ago i think it is yeah and you know so i told you how proud i was that my son was going into music education but i would be lying if i didn't say that i was a little a little apprehensive a little scared too and it really isn't as much about music education i think that we still have those families who believe that it's really important to them and as i say in a district like mine we have this history, this culture where people are going to send their kids to, to band or orchestra or chorus because they, they had such a good experience with it. So we have that part of the population sewn up, right? We have people, we have our people. Um, but gosh, guys, you know, education in general is a bit of a volatile place to be. Um, and I'm not referring to violence in school necessarily, although, you know, that's a concern and something that grabs headlines, but we seem to be fighting about, gosh, just about everything. You know, there are protests, our school board is under attack for almost any decision they make, you know, they're going to make half the population upset. And um, I think that there's a lot more focus on being critical of teachers in general. Um, I'm all for parents being super involved and active in their child's education, mm-hmm. but you know you really would like to see them be more partners than just critics. And so I think it's it's a tough time um, just for education in general, just due to the higher level of scrutiny. And it could it could have something to do with all the the social media and just the way that things get blown out of proportion or become bullet talking points um, in such a hurry. And we just find ourselves in the middle of so many of these moments that it can be a little tiring Mm -hmm. Um, and we can lose sight of what really matters. You know, like when my door closes and I'm in there with, you know, a couple trumpet players and we're, we're working on range and none of that matters, none of it matters, but Mm -hmm. gosh, you know, it's there before school, after school, in the news, all those things. And it does weigh on you a little bit. So I worry um, about that next wave, you know, how many kids are going to think about education, whether it's music or otherwise, is a really viable option. You know, do you want to expose yourself to that level of scrutiny? You know, do you want to be out there Mm -hmm. in in that work? Um, And it may just be that that is limiting or holding back some of the best and brightest people from becoming 
educators, whether it's music or otherwise. And that's, that's scary because I do think that at least when I look back on, on my age, you know, my generation, a lot of the best and brightest kids did go on and be, you know, they, they wanted to be teachers. Mm -hmm. you know, valedictorian. So, so you're, you know, your top 10 or 15% of the class, a lot of them really did aspire to be teachers. And I'm not so sure that's the case um, as much now. So I maybe gave you a loaded answer to the loaded question and just, <laughs> it, you know, yeah, well. <laughs> you need to say, well, these are, these are challenging times, but it feels like there's no end in sight um, right. for those challenges. So, so what advice do you have, um, if any, for young musicians who are seeking a career in music or music education? Um, I don't know. Yeah. What do you, I guess, what do you tell your son? <laughs> I, I say focus on the music yeah. um, because that's the thing that led you there and that's the thing that's the connection that's the relationship that's what you're building that's what you're working on with your students everything else is just clutter and noise mm -hmm. um and certainly the clutter and noise can push into and have an effect on the way you feel and the way that you you know the energy that you bring to the group but if you could just focus on the 40 minutes that you have those kids in front of you none of that none of that is really there in that moment mm -hmm. now that is a very probably a little overly simple way to look at it, but that's what keeps me coming back, you know, for 30 years. Um, and I think that that's the kind of way you would have to focus on it. Like, yeah. you know, I want, music has been super important to me. I want to share that with others, you know, whether it's kids who are nine and 10, you know, the people who sit crisscross applesauce with our kindergartners and first graders and, and do all those in, incredible music activities. You know, it's important work um, because music resonates with us in a way that, you know, other things don't. Mm -hmm. So I suppose that would be the advice is to try and focus on that and let the other things slip away. But, you know, realize well, that, that is not easy. And what I'm hearing you say too is the relationships. And not and not just the music, but the relationships like through music that you and the connection that you're having with your students um, in that time that you have with them. Yeah. So I never I still hang out in the band wing. Right. I'm still there. Um, you know, we have our little part of the building where the, the general music teacher and the choral teacher and we still get to have that same feeling. And how lucky are we? Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people who loved their high school or middle school music experience if they didn't follow that path then you know that's kind of gone mm -hmm. i don't know maybe you get that same thing at the water cooler at the factory or something you know but probably not probably not so for me saying that you get to remain immersed in that um in that world as an adult and you know to get paid for it too is pretty cool <laughs> that's awesome um, okay, I have what this is my last question. Um, so what is your favorite style of music to listen to? What is your like, what is, do you have a favorite band or a um, favorite artist? I am more of a favorite genre. Okay. Um, but I love classic rock with a horn section. 
Okay. All right. So blood, sweat, and tears, Chicago's that that kind of thing. You know, yeah. blues kind of in, infused stuff. Um, I'm a sucker for a good for a good horn line, mm-hmm. um, and that probably is my my go to jam. I'm lucky that both of the kids like classic rock, um, <laughs> so so that we can we can listen to some of those things. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, well. Thank you so much, John, for talking with us today. Um, yeah, this has been great. Um, we're so glad that you could join us. Well, I want you to know I'm glad that we broke down walls today and you had a brass guy on. <laughs> right? Yes. No, wait, are you the, um, thinking of that? Is he the first? Yes, you are. I know. I'm looking at our list right now. Totally. <laughs> well, yes. yeah. so. I, won't be, I won't have my feelings hurt if I'm not. But I just want to say, you know, kudos to you guys for being really accepting, uh, uh, accepting and you know, welcoming brass players. Um, how long do you have a drummer on, though? Is that going to be a little while? Uh, actually, uh, the one right before you is a percussionist. So oh, there you go. I'm not sure yeah. how I feel about that. I know, <laughs> but but he's from, he's from Eastern PA, and you're from Western PA. So we, there's that. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, but thank you so much. And uh, it's my pleasure talking with you both. Yeah, no, this yeah, is great. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, we are so glad that you're out there supporting us. Um, this has been a lot of fun for Morgan and I to get to know our colleagues a bit better, and we hope you are enjoying these conversations. If you, our listeners, um, have any questions or suggestions as to who you might enjoy an interview of, or if you would like to sponsor any of our episodes, We have lots of musicians and students of musicians listening in. So please contact us at lifebetweenthenotes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and video versions can be found on our Life Between the Notes YouTube channel. Follow us at all of these places and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So with that, have a great day and thank you, Morgan and John. Thank you.